Welcome to the Growing Pains Podcast, where we embrace the raw, the real, and the honest truth about motherhood, marriage, and everything in between. I'm Christy Payne, a 30-something-year-old new mom and military wife who's in school to be a physical therapist. Ever since becoming a new mom, I've come to realize how much we as moms are struggling in silence and how although we're more connected than ever, we feel so helpless and alone at times. If you're anything like me, I know you can connect with that. That is why I wanted to create a space where women can come to hear authentic stories and get factual information so we can feel like we're not crazy and that we're definitely not alone in our battles. Because we can't do this alone, ladies. We need to embrace the pain so we can be the best possible versions of ourselves. Are you with me? Let's do it. Happy Monday. I'm super excited for today's episode. I'm excited for all the episodes. Let's be real. Today, we have Dr. Shandarana on our podcast, and she is actually my endocrinologist that I've been working with for the past year or so, and she's helped me really just figure out what's going on with my body and I want we're going to be talking about the thyroid and thyroid issues specifically having to do with pregnancy because I didn't know this I was a first-time mom and maybe you don't know this and you're a first-time mom and so it's just really good information that I want to get out there so I hope you enjoy it if you have any questions that we didn't answer in the episode please feel free to reach out to me I don't have social media still but you can email me you can message me on Facebook messenger you can also send me a voice message through this uh, podcast app. So uh, let's listen in. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Shandarana, and she is an endocrinologist, and she works in Cary, North Carolina. Um, so Dr. Shandarana, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Can you tell us exactly what an endocrinologist is? Sure, sure. Yeah, thank you for um, inviting me, Christy. So the endocrinologist is a doctor who studies um, or I guess treats diseases um, that are um, based on the hormones. So for example, diabetes or thyroid. And then those are some of the major things that we do. Some of the other um, things besides those are osteoporosis, bone disorders, uh, polycystic ovary syndrome. But I would say the majority of the patients that we treat have uh, something related to the blood sugars or the thyroid disease. Wow, that's a lot more. It covers a lot more than I thought it did. <laughs> yeah, I think most people think about diabetes or thyroid when they think about endocrinologists. So how long have you been working as an endocrinologist? So I have been working in North Carolina. I've been working for around, um, we moved around 10 years ago, and then I worked for a little bit over a year in New Jersey. Um, and prior to that, I finished my training. So I would say maybe 11, like 12 years. Oh, okay. And where'd you go to school? I went to uh, NYU for medical school. Nice. So I'm from New York. I grew up in New York, and then I did my training in New Jersey, worked there for a little bit over a year before we moved down to North Carolina. Okay. And um, so what kind of patients do you mainly see? Would you say it's kind of all over the board, or is it mostly males, females? Is there a specific age range of people that you see? Sure. So I see um, so a lot of our diabetic patients are older, and they're both you know, male and female and then I see a lot of the younger women, and those would be more women than men. I mean, we see men too, but especially because a lot of the thyroid um, diseases are more common in women than men. A lot of just like other autoimmune diseases are also more um, common. So I see a lot of the younger women. I mean, of course, it's all spread out. I only see adults, but I do see younger women with um, thyroid disease and then a lot of the older patients with diabetes. Do we know why women are, um, have more issues with their thyroid than men? 
So, you know, a lot of the thyroid disease are autoimmune and um, autoimmune diseases are more prevalent in women because estrogen has an influence on that. So autoimmune disease or, um, you know, just not um, thyroid, but, you know, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, all of those are also much more common in women than men. Okay. Um, so I, I mainly just want to focus on the thyroid. Um, and so can you explain what the thyroid is and what it's responsible for? Sure. So thyroid is, um, is a gland in the body. It synthesizes thyroid hormone. Um, it's a very, uh, it's necessary, thyroid hormone is necessary for the functioning of the body. It controls metabolism in adults. And in children, it's also critical for the brain development, especially uh, infants and young children. So if somebody was born without a thyroid gland, they would need thyroid hormone for proper growth and uh, brain maturation. Okay. So I do know a couple of people that don't, that were born without a thyroid. So you are able to, to function without it. Um, you just have to take medication. Absolutely. So you have to, and uh, thyroid screening is part of the newborn screen in North Carolina. And I think most states in the U.S., I would think probably all the states in the U.S. should be part of the screening. And it probably is definitely in North Carolina it is so that they can be, it can be diagnosed at birth and the treatment can be started um, right away. Okay. And where is it located? Sure. So it's located in the neck. Um, It's located centrally. So if you think about the muscles that help you move the neck from one side to another, so when you move your neck, you will see the muscle that moves. So the way to think about it is thyroid is located between those two muscles, okay. right in the center. It's very close to the trachea, which is the breathing pipe. And it's also very right behind that uh, in the body's esophagus, which is how you swallow. So it's located right centrally. Um, I guess you can think about it under the Adam's apple and in between the muscles that help you move your neck. So it's very small. <laughs> So yeah, the thyroid gland is very small. It's very anterior, which means it's very close to the surface of the skin. And that's why ultrasound is such a good technique because it's located, um, you know, towards the front of the body as opposed to some other structures that are towards the back of the body. So you can't really um, assess them very well with uh, an ultrasound. Okay. Um, and one of the main reasons that I wanted to speak with you about this was because I, I had thyroid issues after my pregnancy. I never mm-hmm. had thyroid issues before that. And so what happens to with your thyroid when you're pregnant? So, you know, there could be a lot of different things that can happen during the pregnancy and also after delivery. So, you know, as endocrinologists, when we see patients for the thyroid, we actually want to distinguish whether it is something really that needs to be treated or there are actually some normal changes that can happen um, during the you know, normal changes of phys- physiologic changes of pregnancy on the thyroid. So it's actually interesting, you know, so pituitary gland in the brain controls a lot of different, it's a master gland. It controls a lot of different glands in the body, including the thyroid. So it actually secretes a hormone called TSH, which a lot of people know about is one of the testing and it binds to the receptors on the thyroid gland. Interestingly, um, the pregnancy hormone, the beta-ACG, that hormone actually shares a partial structural similarity to the TSH. So in early pregnancy especially, it actually also binds to the thyroid, and it fools the thyroid into thinking that it's being stimulated, and it actually causes slightly overactive thyroid. So when we see somebody and we see slightly overactive thyroid early on in the pregnancy, it's actually considered normal transient overactive thyroid of the pregnancy. So you also see, and you might um, have heard from other uh, pregnant women, 
they have a little bit of a goiter, which is a general term of thyroid enlargement. Their neck looks a little bit bigger, and that, again, is because of the stimulation of the thyroid gland. So those are some of the normal changes of the pregnancy, especially with twin pregnancy, somebody who has a condition called hyperemesis, uh, gravidum, where they have a lot of nausea and vomiting. They have a lot of the beta ACG initially stimulating the thyroid. So we do see some of the changes. So those are the considered normal changes in pregnancy. So that we want to distinguish between what's called pathological changes, which need to be treated or monitored. So one of the common things that can be seen in pregnancy is underactive thyroid. So somebody could have sort of borderline underactive thyroid before pregnancy, and many times it actually reveals itself during the pregnancy because there is increased demand of the fetus or the baby on the mother for the thyroid hormones. If the mother is not able to meet those demands, it can reveal itself during pregnancy. So that's something that's quite important, especially in underactive thyroid. Um, sometimes you can see an overactive thyroid also, but it's much less common. What you had was what's called thyroiditis, which is inflammation of the thyroid. You had what's called postpartum thyroiditis, and many women have it where it's painless. It doesn't have any, you don't present with neck pain. And the reason I'm mentioning that is there is something called subacute thyroiditis, which can happen after infection. And that's usually painful. But postpartum thyroiditis is painless where you have some inflammation of the thyroid. It happens after you deliver. It causes uh, overactive thyroid state, which is self-limited. Um, it is followed by the underactive thyroid state. In most people, it's self-limited. And then they go back to the baseline, which is called the euthyroid state. However, there are some women, especially if they have a strong family history of thyroid disease, if they have thyroid antibodies, some people are more predisposed to thyroid condition. In those people, the hypothyroid or the underactive thyroid state persists. It doesn't recover back to the baseline. And in those people, we would um, need to put them on thyroid hormone supplementation. Uh, but many people kind of reverts back to baseline. And if you develop postpartum thyroiditis with one pregnancy, you may, not always, but you are at a higher risk of developing with, with subsequent pregnancies also. But Great. those conditions are most, you know, so I don't know what your plans are, but something to keep at the back of the mind. However, ideally, if somebody has had thyroid condition in the past, we would recommend that it be tested, the thyroid be tested and be optimal before you conceive or before you plan for conception or pregnancy. And the reason is, you know, especially going back to that underactive thyroid state, we really, when I see people, young women who may potentially become pregnant, I usually tell them, let's make sure your thyroid is in a good range before you conceive, because there is an increased demand from the baby as soon as you become pregnant. That first trimester is very important because baby's thyroid gland does not form until around the 11th week of pregnancy. However, the organ formation, especially the heart formation, happens between six to eight weeks of pregnancy. So many times by the time women find out they're pregnant, you know, especially if it wasn't exactly planned, you find out you're already six, seven weeks pregnant by the time you realize it. So you really don't want to miss that window, especially if you have an underactive thyroid, because you really want to make sure that the mother has enough thyroid hormone and some more to meet the demand of the baby who cannot make his or her own thyroid hormone, but the organ formation is happening already. All the organ formation, major organ formation, is done actually by 10th, 11th week of pregnancy. And the second and the third trimester is where they mature and develop. But the heart forms at six or eight weeks, 
a lot of the other uh, you know major body uh, systems develop early on so we really want to make sure that you have enough thyroid hormone so if somebody has underlying thyroid condition it will kind of reveal itself many times in early pregnancy and even some every kind of um, obstetrician practices are different some people will check the thyroid early on other people will wait or kind of depending on your you know risk factors but i usually recommend that you know thyroid be checked as part of the early blood work that you have where you check the cholesterol and all that but i kind of counsel you know young women who have you know plans for pregnancy in the future make sure your thyroid is in a good range before you become pregnant i didn't even really know Maybe my doctors did check my my mm-hmm. thyroid with my blood work. Um, I don't remember if that was something that they did or maybe they didn't. It was normal. But when I was having these symptoms postpartum, mm-hmm. I was speaking with a therapist and she said, have you gotten your thyroid checked? And I'm like, why would that why would I do that? You know? And now that I know all of these things, I'm like, that totally makes sense. But if she hadn't suggested that I get my thyroid checked, I would have probably just been wondering what was going on with my body. And I would have, you know, kind of wrote it out like, like how I did it. I had hyper then hypo, and then it kind of balanced out, but I wouldn't have known what was going on with me. And so I think a lot of women don't know to check their thyroid if they're having Mm -hmm. those symptoms. And can, can you explain what the symptoms are of hyper and hypo? Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes the symptoms, especially in pregnancy, postpartum state, it's kind of hard to figure out because, you know, there are so many like hormone change, hormone shifts and the hormone changes that occur in that stage that you're not quite sure what is related to. Also, the symptoms are sometimes non-specific, So it could be from the thyroid or it could be something else. But typically what I tell my patients or counsel is for hypothyroidism or underactive thyroid, the typical symptoms when patients kind of complain to me is, you know, low energy levels, fatigue, uh, muscle aches, sensation of um you know, fogginess or what's described as a brain fog. So sometimes people would come and tell me, you know, I used to be really good at work and now the same thing that I could finish in 30 minutes, now it's taking me an hour, you know, so it's just taking longer. Memory is not, I wouldn't say memory loss, but it's just kind of difficulty concentrating or kind of, you know, being kind of that change that, you know, compared to your baseline, weight gain, um, constipation, fluid retention, swelling of the legs, usually more so, if you're more severely hypothyroid, you could have like swelling of the legs, um, cold intolerance, irregular menses. So those are the symptoms that may, you may consider with hypothyroidism. With an overactive thyroid, the symptoms are um, weight loss, palpitations, anxiety, tremors, shakiness, increased sweating, um, heat intolerance, feeling very hot compared to other people, diarrhea. Um, Interestingly, hair loss can be seen with both overactive and underactive thyroid. If you look at medical textbook, with the overactive thyroid, the hair loss is where your hair is thin or brittle, it breaks, whereas with the underactive thyroid, it comes off the roots. And again, those are kind of, you know, more kind of finer symptoms that we could assess for or questions that actually end up in our board exams. But in, uh, you know, so we kind of look for those kind of constellation. In pregnancy, inability to gain weight especially after the first trimester, you should think about hyperthyroidism as one of the causes, but hopefully you've already had it checked. But if not, that could be one of the things. Um, You know, hyperthyroidism, especially if it's severe, can also increase the nausea or the vomiting. Again, sometimes it's hard to know because 
It also can be with normal pregnancy. But again, if it's exaggerated, where you're not able to keep food down, you're losing a lot of weight, those should uh, make you know someone think about overactive thyroid. Yeah, I, I definitely experienced the hair loss throughout the whole time it was going up and down and, and the breakage and the temperature intolerance, I think was the thing that that really alerted me to, to like, something is going on with my body that's not normal. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't enjoy any of this, but I would, I will say the hyper part of it mm-hmm. was a lot better than the hypo. Yeah, <laughs> because the hypo is where you feel very sluggish. Yes. As hyper, you feel like, okay, you know what? I'm not feeling the greatest, but I have more energy. Yeah. You know, you feel a little, you know, hyper, you can get more done. Uh, yeah, so, I, yeah. I got so much that. done. <laughs> exactly. Some people don't like it when we correct the hyperthyroidism and bring down. Also, you have the good metabolism. So people will kind of feel good. Whereas as we correct it, you know, um, some people don't like it because now you're bringing them down back to the baseline, especially if they've been hyper for some time. Yep. <laughs> you know, I always tell my patients with the hyperthyroidism comes with its own risk. So you want to be, you know, very careful um, not to stay hyperthyroid in the long run. And um, can you touch on some examples of the diseases? Um, specifically, I think there's Graves. Um, mm-hmm. What you did um, touch on hyper and hypo, but um, thyroiditis and Graves. And is there anything sure. else? So um, the major causes of an overactive, so underactive thyroid is a little bit more simple. So the uh, hypothyroidism is typically, and there's much more rare causes, certain medications can kind of affect it. But most commonly is Hashimoto's, which is the autoimmune thyroid disease where you have antibodies, certain antibodies against the thyroid that increases the risk of developing hypothyroidism. Hashimoto's, we see it run in the families, run in the women in the families. You could have hypothyroidism without Hashimoto's, but sometimes with Hashimoto's, you see a little bit more fluctuations. So that's one of the common causes. Hyperthyroidism, the three kind of major causes are thyroiditis, either postpartum or subacute. Other causes, um, Graves' disease, where you have other set of antibodies that binds to the thyroid and cause overproduction of thyroid hormone. Unlike thyroiditis, Graves will not usually get better without treatment. So many times that would need to be treated and there are different ways you can treat it. Pregnancy complicates that picture a little bit because the medication used for treatment of Graves can have some effect on the fetus. It can cross the placenta. So we have to be a little bit more careful about the dosing that we use, what kind of medication we use. Ideally, it's best if you know that you have Graves disease, that it be treated before you become pregnant. If you're treating somebody, I tell my patients, you know, if there's no rush for pregnancy, wait for a year. Let's take care of this. Let's make sure whatever treatment option you choose that, you know, you're treated. Also, the antibodies for the graves can cross the placenta, especially if they're in high titers, and they can increase the risk of what's called neonatal graves, a newborn presenting with graves disease, because they carry with them those antibodies. So until those antibodies disappear, they have to be careful because sometimes they can be born with very high heart rate and other uh, things that the doctors need to kind of be aware of. So we would rather that, you know, not that we haven't had patients with graves who have kind of delivered safely, but it's a lot more monitoring in terms of both the fetus thyroid gland, because that can get a lot of stimulation and be enlarged. And the newborn can be born with, and there's an entity called neonatal graves. So you want to, or neonatal hyperthyroidism. So I, you just need to be kind of careful about that. But graves many times would need to be treated. Sometimes, you know, if it's pretty mild, we can kind of monitor in pregnancy 
um, pregnancy is a considered a time of immune tolerance for a lot of the autoimmune disease actually get better and then they flare up after delivery. So Graves is one of them. Thyroiditis, was we talked about. Other cause of the hyperthyroidism is what's called toxic nodular goiter. All that means is somebody has nodules in their thyroid gland, either one or multiple. And sometimes some of them can um, take up iodine and make churn up a little too much thyroid hormone and secrete it. So that would be another cause. Usually that is milder than the Graves, typically. And many times, if it's mild in pregnancy, we would not treat it. We would just kind of monitor it. Um, so in pregnancy, unless the pre-thyroid levels are quite high, we would not treat it just because of the risk of the treatment. We want to weigh the risk and the benefit. But those are the different causes of the hyperthyroidism. Also, sometimes people who have underlying thyroid nodules, uh, it's best if they're evaluated before you become pregnant, if you do know about it. And the reason is, if the thyroid nodule biopsies can be done at any point, but for some reason, if you need the surgery, the surgery is best done in the second trimester. We don't really want to do the surgery unless really needed in the first or the third trimester. So I, I think I have nodules on mine, right? Didn't I have one? And then maybe when we checked again, there was another one, but they're really tiny. Exactly. So the thyroid nodules, if they're small, thyroid nodules are very common. They've done some studies where they, you know, depending on the different studies, you know, by the time you're 70, 80, you have 50, 60% risk that you have thyroid nodules. Most thyroid nodules are benign. By chance alone, if I were to go look at 100 women in the community with thyroid nodules, by chance alone, there is a 5 to 10% risk that a given nodule could have thyroid cancer. So 90 to 95% chance that it's not thyroid cancer. And then there are certain risk factors. So if somebody had family history of thyroid cancer, or they have been exposed to major radiation to your neck area as a child, example, you know, treatment of lymphoma or something like that, they have a higher risk. And then there are certain ultrasonographic features that we look at. So when I look at, um, you know, do ultrasounds in my office and look at the nodule, we look at certain features. So certain features are more likely to increase the risk that something bad could be going on. And then there are certain features that are uh, associated with a more benign finding. So if somebody's nodules are filled with fluid, that's more associated with a benign finding. If the nodule have was described as a spongy form appearance on ultrasound, it's associated with more benign finding. There is a finding where you can kind of see calcium deposits. They are called microcalcifications. If you see those, those are more worrisome features. So then we are more likely to say those nodules need to be biopsied versus a benign nodule. So I think those is how we kind of distinguish. If the nodules get larger, more than one centimeter, 1.5 centimeter, depend, depending on how they look on ultrasound, we may recommend biopsy. However, benign nodules can also um, cause hyperfunction, can cause hyperthyroidism, especially in certain settings, like example, if you've had recent CAT scan for some reason, which had iodine, Iodine is a substrate that has, thyroid gland has a lot of affinity for iodine because iodine is used as a substrate to churn up thyroid hormone. So it can, um, if somebody has CAT scan there and they have nodules, which usually are fine, but now they will take up that iodine and can start hyperfunctioning. Certain medications, um, heart medications like amiodarone, um, again, you know, we don't see this in younger patients, but let's say if we had an older patient with heart disease and they're on amiodarone, that, that can cause an overactive thyroid. But those are much more rare causes because now the 
nodules or even the thyroid gland can take up that high load of iodine and may synthesize too much. So those are kind of some of those conditions, you know, where the nodules um, can hyperfunction. But those are kind of the main categories when I see somebody with an overactive thyroid. Is it thyroiditis? Is it graves? Or is it toxic nodular goiter? Many times a lot of endocrinologists now can do ultrasounds right in the office. So it helps us with our diagnosis. When I do the ultrasound, if I see nodules, that becomes one of the differential diagnoses that it could be the one causing the problem. Also, Graves has a certain appearance. It has very a lot of vascularity, a lot of blood flow. So if I see a thyroid gland with a lot of blood flow, it makes me think, you know, it has a certain appearance. I would be like, okay, you know what? I think it may be Graves. However, if I see less blood flow, then it's more likely to be thyroiditis. So if I see somebody or if I saw you and I did the ultrasound, if I see less vascularity, but you're hyperthyroid, it is more likely to be thyroiditis because thyroiditis is a condition where the thyroid gland is not really making too much. It's just releasing thyroid hormone into the bloodstream. So it's actually not really taking up a lot. So we don't see a lot of vascularity. Again, none of this is 100%, but it helps us kind of, you know, steer us in the right direction. To really distinguish between Graves versus thyroiditis, if we wanted to, if it wasn't clear, most of the time we don't need to. However, if it wasn't clear, we would do what's called radioactive iodine uptake in a scan. However, we cannot do that in pregnant women or women who are breastfeeding because the radioactive iodine can be transmitted via the breast milk. So we don't want to do those two. So we are somewhat limited a little bit. However, usually most of the time we can make the diagnosis without doing the radioactive iodine uptake in the scan. In some people who have thyroid nodules, we would say, let's go ahead and do it if we can, if you're not pregnant or breastfeeding, so we know which nodules are over-functioning, which ones are under-functioning, because it also helps us decide which one needs a biopsy. Do the nodules grow fast, or is it something that you kind of check on every year or so? No, most nodules grow pretty slowly, unless... If the nodules grow fast, then we actually worry about either could it be a malignancy or sometimes the nodules that are filled with fluid can sometimes grow. People say they woke up one day and the nodules was larger because the fluid can accumulate fast. But what we call solid nodules, they usually grow very slowly. So I typically repeat the ultrasound in six months to a year. And if they're stable, we can space off the interval. So, you know, if we can do it in six months, if it's stable in six months, we can repeat it in a year. If it's stable in a year, then we can say 18 to 24 months, and then, you know, three to five years if they haven't grown. Nodules can grow. Benign nodules can also grow. I always tell my patient just because it grows does not mean it's cancer, but if it grows, we need to kind of do something about it. So if it's growing, if it's getting larger, we recommend what's called ultrasound-guided biopsy, which we can do in the office. A lot of the radiology facilities also do it, where we, with the ultrasound guidance, we go ahead, go with a very small needle, smaller than what's used for blood draw, and we aspirate some cells. We send that to the pathologist, and most of the time, they can distinguish if it's benign or not. And to my, my understanding is that thyroid, if you do have thyroid cancer, is that kind of the, the least worst kind of cancer that you can get because you can just kind of take it out and be fine? Or is that not correct? That, so, you know, that is correct. For a while, a lot of my colleagues used to say that if you had to pick a cancer to have, you would pick thyroid cancer. We don't say that anymore because there are some thyroid, so most thyroid cancers, you're right, are very slow growing. There are some much more rare thyroid cancers that are aggressive. However, most thyroid cancers are a subtype called papillary thyroid cancer, 
they usually have excellent outcomes for the most people, um, especially actually in younger women when they have it. The outcome is more likely to be better. When you get it in older people, sometimes they have the kind of mutations that are a little bit more concerning in terms of the spread and things like that. But for most people, thyroid cancers are cured when you, once you take it out. Sometimes they require what's called radioactive iodine ablation treatment. So it depends on the final pathology of the thyroid cancer. So there are certain criteria that we use depending on the size. Was it too close to the margins? Were there lymph nodes at the time when they took it out? Were any of the lymph nodes contained the thyroid cancer? Do they have certain, um, you know, um, what they kind of considered invasion towards the blood vessels? So when they look at it, they look at the blood vessels and say, is the thyroid cancer too close to the margins of the blood vessels? So that's called vascular invasion. So if you have any of those findings, then I would more likely to recommend that you get radioactive iodine. Um, it's a very unique um, strategy that we can use for thyroid because thyroid gland is very unique because it has a lot of affinity for iodine. So we can use that um, kind of principle and treat with the radioactive iodine to zap off any remaining thyroid cells that might be there. But that's a discussion based on an individual patient, their age, presence of the lymph nodes or any of those high-risk features. So some women require radioactive iodine, which is fine. It's just that if you require radioactive iodine and if you are young, we would say do not get pregnant for up to a year because it can last in the body for a while. And so we wouldn't recommend that don't get uh, pregnant for up to a year after you get the high dose of the radioactive iodine. If you have small children in the house, there are some precautions to be followed, especially if you have you know toddlers in the house who are um, likely to be very close or share your bed or something like that, then, you know, there are some precautions depending on the dose that you got that you do not um, be in very close contact with them for a couple of weeks. So you would need to find care or things like that. But if it's like older child, somebody, if you're sitting around the dining table and they're sitting across from you, then that's kind of fine. It's not transmitted that way. Um, it used to be many years ago that they would actually put them in the special room in the hospital and put the foil People remember that, cover the windows with the foil so you don't transmit it. But that's kind of gotten out of favor because also we do not treat with very large dosages anymore. A lot of the studies in recent days have found that you don't need to treat with very high amount for it to be effective. Wow, that must have been a crazy experience for those exactly. people. Exactly, like you're in the hospital, the windows are covered with the foil, you can't see your family or they have to come in with a shield. And then we realized now over the last 10 years that really that's not necessary. A lot of the studies have come out that you can treat with a much lower dose and it's still be effective. The only problem we run into is um, kind of women who are either breastfeeding then we can't do it or if they have really young kids, you know, up to three, four years where it's hard to kind of, you know, separate them from you. So yeah. once they're a little bit older or if we can find care for them, a grandparent or a family member can take them for a week, then you don't have to kind of worry about it. So what is the surgery like? And do you as the endocrinologist, do you do that? Or is that something the surgeon does? No, so that's something we would actually recommend that a specialized surgeon do it, either an ENT doctor or a general surgeon who really specializes in endocrine surgery. Because even though in good hands, thyroid surgery is very safe, you want an experienced surgeon because thyroid gland is very vascular. So there's a lot of blood flow to the thyroid. So the people who do the surgery, we want them to be the experts so that, you know, you're not bleeding excessively. Also, the scar um, is much smaller in people uh, who are experienced, the sums of surgeons. Yeah, you wouldn't want endocrinologists to do the surgery. We're not trained in that. 
So in most, uh, in good hands, thyroid surgery, and we live in a great area. We have some good thyroid surgeons that I work, I've worked for with years that I send my patients to. Um, it's, it's very simple. You get discharged in a day or so. The scar over time, the way if their scar is good, the way it's done, it blends with the crease of the skin. So over time, once it's healed, you can hardly see it. And then uh, typical thyroid surgery, the scar is very small. The surgery is very simple. Sometimes the surgery is a little bit more extensive if we suspect that somebody has thyroid cancer and the lymph nodes are involved. Or if they have recurrence of thyroid cancer, we do what's called lateral neck dissection where it goes a little bit laterally and it takes out some of the lymph nodes from the neck. Because most of the thyroid cancer, when it does spread, it usually initially spreads to the lymph nodes in the neck. It does not really spread wide, at least initially. So we recommend that those lateral lymph nodes also come out. So that's kind of the thyroid surgery. Um, sometimes, very rarely, I've had a few cases over the course of my career where people have had thyroid cancer that has spread to the lungs. But even that can still be treated for many parts. But those are usually we see it in older people. In younger people, even though the thyroid cancer may involve the lymph nodes or they may have recurrence, it's generally very treatable. So if somebody believes that they might be experiencing some kind of thyroid issue, what are the steps that they should take to kind of get that figured out? So, you know, there are two aspects to the thyroid, the function of the thyroid and the structure of the thyroid. So function of the thyroid is where we talked about the symptoms of hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism. If they have those symptoms, the first thing would be to, you know, if you have a primary care doctor, they can check a thyroid function test. Uh, TSH, which a lot of people are familiar with, is a screening test where it's a very good test. Um, they can start off with that. And then if that's abnormal, you can do, you know, by the time patients come to us, they already have had some sort of testing. So we do a little bit more detailed panels. So we would do a TSH and we would do a free T4, free T3, plus minus. And then we would also do some antibodies depending on what we suspect is going on. So that's more the function of the thyroid. If somebody feels they have a structural thyroid problem and the symptoms, if you have a nodule, if it's growing or if your thyroid gland is enlarged, you may feel a um, sensation of neck fullness, pressure, maybe difficulty swallowing. Typically, I tell my patients, if you extend your neck like this when you sleep at night and you extend, typically patients complain of something pushing, fullness or something pushing towards the back. Those could be the symptoms of an enlarged thyroid gland or a thyroid nodule that might be enlarging. So that's the structure of the thyroid. The best test for that would be a thyroid ultrasound or a dedicated neck ultrasound. I like to do it myself in the office because when you do go to the radiologist and do it, it's usually the radiology techs who are doing it. They take some pictures, then they send you home, they save the pictures, and then the radiologist goes back and takes a look and then kind of comes up with the diagnosis. When you do it real time, it's much easier because if you didn't get a good quality picture, you can kind of do it yourself. And certain information is better to obtain real time, you know, vascularity, the borders of the nodule. For example, just to give you an example, people who have Hashimoto's, some of them, their thyroid gland looks very irregular. It's actually described as a pseudo-nodular. So if you look at a still picture, it may look like it's a nodule. But if you're looking at real time, you can see that it's actually not a well-defined nodule and it kind of overlaps into, you know, irregularity. So sometimes real time gives you more information. Um, but ultrasound is a good way to start. Occasionally, we've had to get a CAT scan if we feel that the nodule is causing compression of the trachea, the breathing pipe, or the esophagus. 
Um, uh, you know, the ultrasound doesn't evaluate the deeper structures. So if you want to look at the cross section, you would have to get a CT scan. Sometimes we get radioactive iodine if you're not sure of the diagnosis or something. But typically, ultrasound is a good way to evaluate for structural disease. And the blood work is a good way to evaluate for functional disease. Is there anything else that, that maybe people might want to think about or information that you would want people to have as far as as far as thyroid yeah you know yeah, I get a lot of questions sometimes like oh can I eat something or not eat something mm, yeah that's a very common popular question that I get with or without pregnancy so you know unlike diabetes diet doesn't always have a big impact on the thyroid and sometimes people are like oh can I use natural ways to treat it there are some I think studies. I asked you that. Yeah, a lot of people ask that. It's very common. It's a very good question because people want to feel like they have control over the situation. What can I do or not do to help my situation? There are some studies that showed if you have a Hashimoto's, the selenium supplementation may help. I usually tell my patients, are eat a handful of Brazil nuts. Instead of taking more and more supplements or medications, if you eat a handful of Brazil nuts, those have rich source of selenium. They may help you with the Hashimoto's. And even if it doesn't help, it's not going to harm you. In terms of prevention, um, you know, excessive soil products have been associated in some studies with thyroid dysfunction. So especially people who have milk allergies and there are younger kids who might be drinking just a lot of soy, soy milk every day or eating tofu or soy yogurt and stuff. That we recommend you want to be a little bit more careful if you're eating excessive soy products. Biotin supplementation, um, that's another common thing that comes up because biotin is used for hair loss. So biotin supplementation does not cause thyroid dysfunction, but if you're going to give the thyroid blood work, hold off on the biotin before that. But I also tell my patients is don't be afraid of taking the thyroid hormone if you need it, especially during pregnancy or, you know, or even without pregnancy because thyroid hormone is just really so safe. There's really not too many risks of the side effects unless you get over-treated. But as endocrinologists, if we are treating somebody in pregnancy, we monitor them so closely that even if transiently we become over-treated, we would back off on the dose a little bit. But really, don't be afraid of taking the thyroid hormone because the risk-benefit analysis, if there's almost no risk and there's potential benefits, why not take it? And that's what a lot of endocrinologists feel. A lot of the OB, the, you know, the Obstetrician Gynecology Society, their guidelines are a little bit different. They're a little bit more conservative. They said, unless the TSH really goes up, there's not really too much data to show that it helps. But we've had some studies done that shows that it might have, especially if you're quite hypothyroid during pregnancy, it can affect the fetus, um, the IQ of those children as they get older. So we feel that if there is potential benefit, even if the benefit may be mild or small, why not treat if there's not really much risk? So I would say do not be afraid of thyroid hormone if you need it. Hyperthyroidism is a different story, but it's much also much more, much less, you know, prevalent compared to hypothyroidism, which is really so common. And even with hypothyroidism, the lab value is very wide. So we do find that even within the normal range, as the TSH starts trending up and the TSH goes in the opposite direction as the thyroid, in my experience, as the TSH goes about 2.5 or 3, even though it's quote unquote, your doctor may say, oh, it's normal. Many people start experiencing symptoms. So it's a perfectly reasonable option, especially in women who might become pregnant or are already pregnant, to get started on the thyroid hormone, which is really very safe. We have data of it being used in you know, kids, pregnant women without any ill effects for years now. So I would say do not be afraid. Some people say, I don't want to take any medication in pregnancy. But I would say don't be afraid of this because this will actually help you. 
is safe, is safe for the baby. And it may actually help and you don't have to worry, you know, the baby is not very efficient at making thyroid hormone even after the thyroid gland develops. So why not take the thyroid hormone to make sure that you have enough for the baby? So that's kind of something that I would, you know, want to say in terms of the diet and stuff. It doesn't have as big an effect if somebody was diabetic, diet would have a huge effect. So for thyroid, sometimes, you know, the diet may or may not help as much. So I would say, don't be afraid. If you need the medication, it's okay. Yeah, I, I definitely was one of those people where I'm like, I want to feel like I have control. So I'm going to read some books and do some research on what kind of food I can do to heal or eat to heal my thyroid. You know, for thyroiditis and things like that, there's, there's so much like stuff out in the literature, I mean, out in the media, but if it's not really supported by good studies, mm-hmm. it's hard to say that, you know, you don't want to kind of recommend, you know, so the selenium supplementation can help with Hashimoto's. But if somebody has postpartum thyroiditis, it's really not going to help. It would just say things that you can do to decrease your stress as much as possible, but not with the food. And I know sometimes it's kind of very disappointing to patients. Oh, I cannot control it. But with some of those things, you just have to let it take its course. And, you know, because in media, there's always all these kind of things, you know, eat broccoli, don't eat broccoli, you know. But if there's not good studies to support it, you don't want to kind of say random things. You know, so we usually, I tell my patients, direct them to the American Thyroid Association or Endocrine Society websites. There's a lot of useful patient information there. But that way, at least you're getting the data from people who have done research on this field, you know. I really appreciate all this information. Um, It's so super helpful. Um, It's so crazy that such a small gland does so much and affects so much. Exactly, because it's a very small amount, but it can affect all the organs of the body. You know, it's in micrograms, the dose that we use just shows such a small amount can have like a profound effect. If people want to find out more information about thi- um, about the thyroid or maybe like symptoms, what are some good resources that they can, that they can go to? So I would just Google American Thyroid Association and that has a lot of um, useful patient information. Other websites that we like is Endocrine Society and also a website called, if you type in American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, um, they have a lot of the patient information and it's more kind of oriented to clinicians. And that's a website that a lot of us in kind of, you know, practice, you know, like they have a lot of useful, you know, guidelines and data and things like that. So those are some of the websites I would suggest look at those instead of those some certain groups and stuff, because people go based on their experience or like random data they might have heard from somebody, which is fine to kind of hear about other people's experiences, but I wouldn't um, kind of base, you know, decisions kind of based just on that. That episode was filled with amazing information. I know there was a lot of scientific-y type of words thrown out there. I do have some of that in the show notes. But again, if you guys have any questions about anything that Dr. Shandarana said and anything that we talked about or have questions about things that we didn't answer, please reach out to me because this is so, so important. It's important that you get questions answered so that you can start feeling your best and living your best life. Thank you so much for spending time with me today on the Growing Pains podcast. If you vibed with this episode or think it might add value to someone you know, please share it with them. Like legit, go send it to them right now or post it on social media and tag me. I am so damn grateful for you and I appreciate being on this journey with you. Talk to you later. Bye.